Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on the Duran Duran Albums podcast by Elisa Lorello, who is a best-selling author of at least 13 books, I think you were boasting last week, and quite rightly so, of selling over half a million copies, which is just an extraordinary figure. And I have also read your brilliant memoir, Friends of Mine, 30 Years in the Life of a Duran Duran Fan, hence the reason you're on this podcast. But I mean, just when I mentioned there, Elisa, that you've sold over half a million copies of your books. I mean, that is, you know, as a reader, as a writer, that is so impressive. Thank you. I actually had already surpassed that mark just with independently published books and at least one other book that was contracted through another publisher. But with this particular publisher that I finally hit that official half a million mark. And to say it's it's like seeing the dial turn in your car's mileage, <laughs> you know, when you get to like a hundred thousand, to see that five hundred thousand mark, you know, and to know it's official was just a thrill. One of the things that impressed me was particularly having for anybody who's read or going to read your memoir. And it's kind of charts it's obviously a story of your your life and Duran Duran plays a central role in it but then it charts how the, the evolution of your almost your development in your career as a writer so then from reading that I think it came out in 2013 and then to see where you are now I suppose for, even from your point of view sometimes you must have to pinch yourself to see how far you've come oh absolutely yeah I mean I I want to eventually write a second memoir because of the tremendous life change that has happened since I published Friends of Mine. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I'm right. I wrote my entire life at that point, which was 43 years to the point where I published it. And just eight years after that, because it'll be eight years this year, published having uh, since the book came out, I could write another book just about the eight years, not even, you know, the entire life. I mean, I could fit just with everything that's happened in the last eight years is pretty extraordinary. And the first thing that I that I really was so pleased about in your memoir was the fact that you told us how to pronounce your first name properly. <laughs> so it's at least because otherwise I would have probably fallen out the trap of many people and mispronouncing it. Well, it's so funny because I was going to say, and by the way, you pronounced it correctly. Thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other thing that any time 
whenever you read, whenever I read a memoir, and the thing that always strikes me is I'm always full of admiration because there's a certain level I think of obviously honesty and courage because you're kind of to an extent you're bearing your soul, you're, oh, you're yes. telling things that you've maybe not shared beyond maybe the confines of a few friends and family. You're sharing that with the world. It definitely feels like getting undressed in front of an audience. And it, it is, it's a bit scary to do it. And especially because that particular book started, originally I was going to just write about the 80s and have it be something just kind of nostalgic. But as I started writing it, I realized I needed the context of what came before then. And then I really felt like I needed the context of what came after. So I realized it really wasn't just a nostalgic piece. This was my life. And in, but through this very, very particular lens, because it was, you know, as I've, I've said this before, where, you know, when you're 14 years old and you're a fan at 14 and you say, I'm going to love this band for the rest of my life. And then 30 years later is the rest of your life. And I realized I'm still in love with this band. You know, that it, it was true. And I wanted, and so I suddenly realized that's what I want to explore. I don't just want the nostalgic piece. I want to see how did that play out of the rest of my life and how did, what is the rest of my life look like through that particular lens? But it was definitely, there were definitely things I wrote where I was saying, you know, this is a little hard to be putting out into the world. And and there were even things that I did withhold that other authors can argue with me that I shouldn't have withheld them. Um, and I could even argue with myself. I've even questioned myself, should I have withheld them? But that's what I chose to do. The thing is, it's your story. So you tell you tell your story the way you want to. It's not really any, exactly. You know, and, and we as readers read the story you want us to. Exactly. But that's, that is always something the writer is struggling with in fiction and nonfiction is, am I telling the truth here? And I'm telling the whole truth. And you definitely have the authority and the autonomy in terms of what you want it to be or how you do it, but you still want it to be authentic. So I think the goal was I'm choosing not to share this particular detail and if I don't choose it, can I still be authentic about what I'm writing? And I ultimately decided I could, and I did, and I was. And I, I'm always free in the next book if I want to address it then, and I'm ready to talk about it then, then I could talk about it then. But at the time, yeah, there were things that I did not feel comfortable with. And most, most of those decisions were because it involved somebody else. And I just didn't want to betray them in any I didn't feel it was fair to to rope them in and again you kind of have to do that in a memoir and you know Anne Lamott famously said uh you own your stories if people don't like the way they're portrayed in your stories they should have behaved better because one of the things I'm always I do judge a book by its cover then also the, the title so Obviously, friends of mine immediately that jumps out, and then the, the subtitle "30 Years in the Life of a Duran Duran Fan." But then, actually, the cover itself—it's just so evocative of that period. I think for people, I'm not sure if younger people would, it would quite resonate the same way of you know when people would have either their, their school bags or jotters or, or books, and it would be full of either your favourite band or the person that you, you had a crush on at the time. And I think the cover does that so well. 
Well, I have to, the cover is a story of itself and it's a, and it's a great Duran Duran story because I had connected with Patty Palazzo and so many know she is the designer for a lot of Duran Duran's merchandise and products and works very closely with John Taylor. And she had designed John's book cover, which had come out the year before in 2012. And I was still working on friends of mine at that time. So I had commented on, I think it was an article about the cover. And so Patty, I think, started following me on Twitter and we we just started communicating. And I thought, God, wouldn't it be just fantastic if I could get her to design that book cover? So I shot for the moon and I contacted her and I asked her to do it. And she happily said yes. And it led to a lot of conversations between the two of us about what what I wanted it to look like and ideas I had and ideas she had. And she said, just send me stuff. She goes, send me photographs from that time. Send me whatever, you know, whatever you want, mementos. So I saved the spiral notebook from junior high school when I was in eighth grade or whatever, you know, 14 years old that I had doodled all over. She had about seven designs for me, I think, six or seven options, book cover options. And that one was the first one. And so she literally took that notebook and literally tattooed my face with all of those doodles. I absolutely loved it and adored it. And then she said, for what it's worth, I showed this cover to John and he really liked it too. And I said, well, now we have to use it. (laughs) I mean, in terms of John Taylor, I'm... Am I allowed to give that a kind of spoiler as to the to how the, the memoir finishes? Because there's a brilliant, brilliant picture in the book. Well, just spoiler alert. Because obviously you mentioned that he had brought out his autobiography and when you went to see him and you took a copy of your book and there's just a brilliant picture of you holding his book and him holding your book. And it's just, I think it's it's a brilliant way that it kind of ties that, that period up in terms of how the, the memoir ends. I, I thought it was yes. a, a lovely way to finish. I kind of knew, I think, that that was the ultimate, you know, that that was the end on the high note, <laughs> so to speak. And um, so again, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know. Um, <laughs> but I was so lucky even just to get that photograph because I think it was Wendy Leister, who is the part of the management team, happened to take that photo. And I had to comb through, I think it was the Duran Duran website to find it. And then I asked for permission to use that. And they were very, they were very cooperative. I have to say the management, because I was concerned about the song lyrics and the legality of that. And it's funny because I had an entertainment lawyer at the time. He said, you can probably get away with it. And I said, well, let me, let me do it by the book, so to speak. And so I, I did reach out to them and made sure that I got their permission and and paid a sm- small fee to use the songs, which were well was well worth it, and just got their overall cooperation from it, you know, with the project, which I was really thrilled about. One of the other things that struck me about the memoir, and again, and I've seen a few things of people discussing maybe the difference that sometimes male and female fans, how they are fans of Duran Duran, particularly maybe back in the early days you know, when you first as a teenager maybe get into them. But what struck me, and I think maybe because you came from a very musical family, that, you know, really talented musicians in the family, even the way you talked about the songs in the book is almost like from a, a music, you know, it wasn't just 
there was an element of fandom, but there was also an element of you were actually looking, even at a young age, and appreciating the different aspects of each of the songs. Yes, and that also, I think, was why it became more than just this little nostalgic piece, because I realized how that was, and that's why I kind of also realized I have to talk about my childhood here. I have to talk about that I grew up with musicians. I grew up with music, live music, recorded music. And that was my happy place for a really, really long time. And then when my siblings started moving, because I'm the youngest and my siblings started moving out, I think that was one of the reasons why I was getting increasingly lonely because that life blood wasn't in the house anymore and that music wasn't in the house anymore. And then, of course, when my parents split up, that was really the the nuclear bomb that dropped on, on my life at the time. And, you know, it's funny, I was a psychology major in college and I took a class in adolescent psychology and was reading about trauma that happens at like 13 years old. And I just went, wow, that explains so much of how I processed at the time. But it was, I realized, yes, I do listen to this music a little bit more objectively than I think most people do. It was because I had learned how to do that. I kind of learned how to listen to it almost in the same way when I'm reading, you know, reading a story. I'm not just reading the story. I'm looking at these nuances of character and description and sentence structure and style and things like that. So it was kind of the same thing. It's, you know, almost listening to, oh, I know that I know what a drum fill is. Oh, I know what, you know, what that is. And oh, I know what those harmonies are. And I could immediately sing the harmony parts. Um, So things like that were different for me. And I remember also being a 15-year-old thinking, that's my in with them. Because, you know, you you have the fantasy at 15 years old that you want to meet these guys and you want to be taken seriously. So that was part of kind of my fantasy life of if I ever meet them, I'm going to be able to have these brilliant conversations about music with them. So, and I kind of poke fun at that at one point, you know, like imagining these conversations that I like, like, I know, I know the brand of bass, you know, that John is playing, or, you know, I know what a Rickenbacker guitar is. And I'm thinking that's going to be my in with them, you know? Yeah. I think that's really funny, actually, when you have those, those kind of imaginary conversations. And and as I say, you can, that's where you can kind of think back, you know, when you are at that age and kind of that flight of fancy. Did you find the book quite cathartic to write then? I did at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was actually, I was actually in a real euphoric period after it was published, which was really interesting. I was, I kind of, I started wearing the retro, you know, like I started wearing my swatch and I dyed my hair black (laughs) and, you know, like the things I had wanted to do in high school that I didn't do, you know, I remember it. I'd wanted to, to be kind of, you know, dress up kind of new wave at the time in high school. And my mom was like, you're not dying your hair black. And then it's like, <laughs> I'm 43 years old. I'm going to dye my hair black. <laughs> um, so yeah. So things like that, I really felt like I had really come into, into myself having written that, I think. And that felt really good. I think there was a little bit of a weight off my chest having, you know, having written it um, and having it put out in the world, even though I had processed so much of that, you know, I had made my peace with my parents getting divorced years ago. But I think 
when it's finally on the page and in the world, something does happen. The interesting thing, again, here's a little spoiler alert, I guess. By the end of the book, I also was writing about how much I was just loving being single at that point, how happy I was to be single. And I just remember about a month after that book came out, this little voice said, you know, it's time to be in a relationship again. I'm like, what? (laughs) And obviously, you may have mentioned already in in the course of the conversation, people will know if you jump forward to now that you've, you've gone from, as you say, being single, you're now married. Yes. And that too, I mean, it's, you know, I'm kind of giving away a little bit of what the next, the next memoir is going to be. But my husband, we had met in 2011, because he's an author as well. And so we had met at this, we had the same publisher, and we met at this publisher's party in New York City. And that was the only kind of, all these authors have been flown into New York. And our only real job that weekend was you have to come to, you have to show up to this party. You could do whatever you want after that, but you have to show up to this party. So we had met, he was married at the time and everybody except me was (laughs) drunk at this party. And so I don't even remember exactly the conversation I had with him at the time, but I had introduced myself and I kind of knew who he was just by name hadn't read any of his books at that up to that point. He had not read any of mine, but we became Facebook friends after that. And then when the memoir did come out, he, he bought it, he read it, and he wrote me a really nice letter. And he and I are the same age. As a matter of fact, I'm, I am 13 days older than he is, so, <laughs> as everybody likes to say, the cradle robber. Um, so he what he related to was... His childhood growing up in the Texas, uh, he was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, grew up in those suburbs. And so he related to being the suburban teenager, even though Texas and New York couldn't be farther apart in so many aspects, but there was something there he related to. And he was an REM fan. So he related to it as that. And that's the other thing I love about the memoir. I mean, it's, yes, it's about being a Duran Duran fan, but I believe it's for anybody who grew up with a crush. You know, I mean, my, my eldest brother read it and said, well, I related, I, re, I relived my years of the Beatles, you know, and somebody else had read it and said, oh God, I, David Cassidy was it for me at the times. When, I, when people write to me or tell me, they tell me their story. They don't relay my story back to me. They tell me their story growing up. And if it was Duran Duran, then they tell me their Duran Duran story. But if it was another band, New Kids on the Block, the Beatles, whatever it was for their particular time period, that's what they relate to. So that was the starting point for us. To We were no longer just this very superficial Facebook friends. Now we were having a conversation and it started because he read that book. It's funny, that's one of the things I was going to say to people that probably like me, like a lot of fans would, you know, the, the title will catch their eye because they want to read it because it's a fellow Duran Duran fan. But everybody has their own story. And what I found when I was reading it, as I was thinking then of the music and then it was taking me back and thinking about my own childhood and, and growing up and where, where the music placed itself in different stages of my life. So I think that's what it does really well. Is And I'm sure everybody else that reads that, especially as you say, if you're a fan of music, whether it is Duran Duran or another band, you then start to relate at the various points of your life of different songs and what it meant to you. And 
I found that I really, I really enjoyed that aspect of reading the book. That's great. And that that's the ultimate compliment for me, especially for that particular book. If it's making you do exactly what you just said, I think that's what any good memoir does, really. Um, and any good story. It doesn't even, I think even a fiction story, I've gotten letters from people with certain books that say, oh, I so related to what that character went through. And then, and again, they don't tell me, they don't talk about the book anymore. They tell me their story and their life experience with it. So that is always the ultimate compliment for me. And it's funny because I did make friends <laughs> as a result. I mean, I made friends with Patty and Patty and I, you know, Patty Palazzo and I, when we were talking about planning the book, we also talked about our teen years and got to know each other through that. David O, who you know through the D side, he and I became friends because of that book. Durandy and I became friends because of friends of mine. So it's it's great. It was a great thing for that too. And it strengthened. And you know, my husband and I, we had a friendship the three years before, two years before we actually got together. So, you know, so it's this, I think it was so well titled that way. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, because of the lasting power, you know, because of what it ultimately does. And it's this bringing together of your experiences and your memories and your connections to these people and places and songs. And yeah. Because yeah. one of the things I, I've, and I've said this a few times to various people I've been interviewing for this the podcast is it's been the first time I've really been aware of A, how big Duran Duran were and are in the United States, but also I think there was a, because it's quite often compared to it was the next thing after Beatlemania. Yes. Gerandemonium. And I'm not quite sure if it was quite the same thing in Scotland or in the UK as it was in, in the States. But I was never really aware of that until talking to people and, and realising the extent of just how massive they were. Oh, it was. It was absolutely. I mean, I just remembered 1984, 1985. They were everywhere. And it really was. It was a Beatlemania thing. And I, and I even remember, like, my aunt because again 15 years old I was not talking about anything else at the time but the funny thing was she said she looked at my eldest brother Mike and said this is you with the Beatles and he said he says yes but she does listen to other music <laughs> he said I didn't listen to anything else at that time, you know, if it wasn't a Beatles song, I turned the radio off because she leaves the radio on, you know, and she does listen to other artists. She doesn't talk about them, but she's listening. Um, so that was the one difference that he and I had in terms of his Beatle experience and my Duran experience. But they were, they were, they were absolutely huge here. But I think, was it 87 when New Kids on the Block came around and then they were, they were the next, they were the next thing. I do a, you know, another podcast, the Read All About It podcast, where I talk to people about books, and I know you're going to be coming on that to chat about your overall Can't writing wait. career. <laughs> um, and I quite often do a podcast, one of the episodes with my friend, Chris Dolan, who's a, a writer. And one of the things that we regularly talk about, we mention is we can't understand how anybody doesn't like the Beatles. And so my stock <laughs> answer, if somebody says to me they don't like the Beatles, I think that ears are painted on because... You can't be hearing anything if you, if you like the Beatles and don't like them. <laughs> and that too, I I hope I communicated that in the book because that was the other reason. That was the other thing I thought was really important was to say 
I don't think I could have had an appreciation for Duran Duran without having grown up with the Beatles. I mean, I think in a sense, they really still are the foundation to my musical knowledge and framework for what I like and what I listen to. And I can't imagine not having that as kind of like your backbone, you know, of that. And it is, it's a very weird thing that these other generations who haven't listened to them don't have that. Or like you said, it's somebody who has and says, eh, <laughs> they're okay. And it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, certainly over here, I remember being at school and Duran Duran were seen maybe to an extent as being a, a girls band. Certainly in the early days, there was just such this, you know, there was a certain level of hype surrounding them and, and they had a lot of female fans. So for a lot of guys, you either didn't admit or, they, they, you know, there wasn't this same groundswell of fandom, as it were. So even now, sometimes I'll say to people that, you know, I'm still friends with a friend of mine since we were at school. And, and he's still, if I say Duran Duran, he kind of, it's almost like he goes back to being a teenager again and goes, well, you don't like them. But then I think there's 40 years worth of music there. A, there's a reason why they're still going after 40 years. Very few bands do. There's no way you can listen to all that and not find something that you like. I think that's impossible. Well, that, you know, and that's funny because even my brothers had that reaction back in the mid 80s that this is not a band to take seriously musically. But I think as their career progressed and they got older, meaning Duran Duran, and they got more sophisticated as musicians, my brothers started to really listen to them a little bit. I mean, especially when the wedding album came out. I mean, to at least two of my brothers listen to Ordinary World and had and had that kind of reaction of God, I wish I wrote that song. Like that is a really, really great song. And Come On Done, they really liked. And so I think as they progressed, they kind of realized, okay, these are musicians. These are not pop stars. These are, you know, they are pop stars and they are musicians. And even my husband, because of me, started listening to more than just the hits and developed an appreciation for them and especially developed an appreciation for them when he saw them live with me. And I said that to him because he had never seen them live before until, until he and I got together. And I did kind of tell him that. I'm like, you don't have to become a fan of them, but you are going to develop a whole new appreciation for them once you see them live. And he totally did. He just said, these guys can play. These guys know how to connect to an audience. They know what they're doing. <laughs> they write great songs. And he just developed a whole new appreciation for them. He would never call himself a fan, I don't think. But he, yeah, he definitely, they were not just the band that all the girls liked in the 80s with those, you know, with Hungry Like the Wolf. You know, he yeah. has a whole new respect for them. Because my argument always would be, from the bands that I listened to back, so in 1981 when they first came out and I first heard them, so there's very few of those bands that are still going. But not only that, the ones that are going, they generally will be touring, playing all their hits, which is fine and there's a place for nostalgia. But Duran Duran are still bringing out new music in 2021, 40 years after they, they brought out their first song. I think that is extraordinary. And not only that, but people are excited to hear what they're going to be doing next because you don't know. And that's the other reason why I think there's a second memoir coming in, you know, in the works, because now it's another 10 years and we're all still together. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's that, too, is impressive to me, because like you said, there are very few who have that kind of staying power and are more than just. And this has become a very derogatory term to call a band a legacy act. 
but I think they are more than just that. But also, I, you know, David just did that episode of The D Side where he interviewed younger, you know, I think they were in their 20s. And I think one was at least 11 talking about <laughs> loving 80s music and, and loving that music at the time, uh, you know, loving that music now. One of the things that came out in the conversation was there's access to music now that we didn't have back in the 80s. Whatever was on the radio was pretty much it. And, the, and whatever other music you had previously, if you liked the Beatles, it was because your, your bro, you know, somebody in your family liked the Beatles or, you know, that was the access that you had. But now it's open season on music. And in fact, I was just reading and we'll talk about this in the next podcast. I finally read the biography about Steve Jobs and talking about how the iPod and iTunes really revolutionized the music industry in terms of accessibility. That now all of a sudden you did have Beatle fans because they listened to a couple of snippets on iTunes or something and they suddenly learned who the Beatles are and that type of thing. I think an advantage that Duran Duran has now, I think, I think there's an advantage and a disadvantage. I think the advantage they have is that they can attract a newer audience because of this kind of accessibility now, but they still have the firm, which of course I like that they have this, they still believe in this album as this cohesive unit that tells a story. And I don't know that they're comfortable breaking that up. I, I think it's kind of, the, they know this is the world they live in now where a fan is going to play each song and they're going to decide which ones they like and those are the ones they're going to download rather than listening to that album from beginning to end and realize that each song has a specific place in that rotation. But I also love, for example, that when they go on tour, they're still promoting the album you know, and it's not just about, hey, we're going to go on tour and we're going to sing all our hits. It's, hey, we're here, you know, this is the Paper Gods tour. <laughs> we're going to promote the Paper Gods album. Hey, this is the All You Need Is Now tour. We're going to promote the All You Need Is Now album. And I've, I've loved that they still have that mentality of they want to keep it about the newer stuff and not necessarily let the old stuff carry them, so to speak. And I also think those two albums... I would argue with anyone, they're as good, and certainly the, I mean, the year they came out, they were as good as anything that was getting released in music. And it's interesting, Molly and I, Molly, who does the podcast with me, and we've had, had this chat a couple of times of, so I said, particularly the first time I listened to an album, probably the first few times, even now, I would still always listen to track one to track 10 or 12 in order, because that, that's the way it's set out. And I don't know if that's a habit you just gain from when you were listening to vinyl. She's the opposite. She'll just dip in and out and find find all the songs in, in the fullness of time, but yes. not necessarily in that order. I think I definitely think it's a product of upbringing that for most people there is a preference of no. Nope, if I'm gonna, uh, you know, I want to listen to this album start to finish, and then I'll download that album or something, and then I will break it up if I want to, you know, because there's still the there was always the mixtape. And even that's funny, you know, it's funny talking about my my musical, you know, every time I heard mix, I thought of it in the context of an engineer mixing a record. So anytime somebody said a mixtape, I was like, no, no, that's not what it is. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, now I've conformed. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, 
that's what you did. You know, you would break up your collection to listen, you know, to single out these songs. But before I did that, I had a sense of what I was listening to of the whole before I broke it up into into its pieces. Yeah, and I I, I must admit, every time when people talk about mixtapes, I do have a kind of a real nostalgia for those. There was a kind of sense of, depending on who it was you were making the mixtape for, there was something quite romantic about it. Even as a teenager, if you were making a mixtape for someone to try and impress them or let them see what kind of music you like. But there was just a real effort into crafting this tape of all your favourite songs or songs that you thought the other person might like. Do you know what's funny? That somehow passed me in terms of my experience. I don't recall ever, and maybe this is something I can explore in the next memoir, you know, of I don't recall doing mixtapes for any, I recall making some for myself, but I don't recall making them for anybody else or anybody making them for me. I have a feeling that ha- that speaks to a lot of how isolated I was at the time, that I was not doing this. I, my husband and I made, made, of course, now you call it a playlist, you know, my husband and I made a playlist for each other, you know, just as we were getting together. And it's like, to think of it now, it's like, wow, I was in my mid-40s before I got a <laughs> mixtape from somebody. But I, I didn't see the impact of that until I read Rob Sheffield's book, Love is a Mixtape, about that. And then I saw the power of that. But I think I'd always taken that for granted because it had somehow passed me by. I think even now, but if you make, because I love making playlists, whether it's yes. just for playing music in the kitchen, if I'm, I'm baking, or just if people are coming out of the house. But, you know, particularly as you say, if you're making a playlist for your husband or, or he's making one for you, there's something, because you you're still, you're telling a wee bit about yourself with each song that you're choosing. Oh, it's a story. It's a, yeah. and w- which is surprising that I didn't catch on to it. You know, that I've never caught on to that idea of making playlists or mixtapes, because it is, it's totally a story that you're telling. You're telling a story about you, you're telling a story about the other person, and you're telling a story about each other, about this relationship that you have with them, or that you want to have with them. <laughs> and that's, that. For as a writer, I love a good story. One thing I was going to ask you, and obviously you don't need to reveal this, just as long as you say your next memoir that you're going to write at some point, Will it have a Duran Duran song title as the title of the book? Yes. Oh, that's all I need to know. I say I'm happy. Okay. I'm very, very um, superstitious about how much I give away. But yeah, no, that's fine. Just, yeah, that's fine. You, you'll, you'll like it. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's all I need I'll to know. It, I don't want to. leave it at that. that that's, that's good enough for yes. me. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll, yes. Certainly, I'll certainly look forward to that one. Can Fans I... of the memoir will like the title. Excellent. Good. Yeah. That's so I'm I'm pleased. That's that's me. I'm happy now. I have Didn't... no idea when it'll come out because I, I am finishing up a, a novel, which I also think you will like very much. Uh and again, I'm not I'm too superstitious to talk about it, but it's a long time. I actually started it in 2014 and it just kept putting getting pushed to the back burner and, and so I finally have resurrected it. I'm loving it. I, I never wanted to let it sit in a drawer. Um, I always loved the story. So it's finally time to tell that story. But I do have a first draft of this memoir written, and I'm just not sure when it's going to get picked up again and when it's going to be published again. But I do hope it's within the 10-year window, of the last one at least. One of the things that I've always 
wanted to do with everybody who comes on to the Duran Duran Albums podcast. And this is, the, I suppose this is the most difficult question. I kind of forewarn you in, in terms of asking you for your three favourite Duran Duran songs. And then also have to just uh, add by way of an apology for, for putting you on the spot <laughs> trying, trying <Yeah>. to make you. <laughs> Um, so, and again, I'm not going to hold you to it, obviously, in a yes. different day. If I hear you somewhere else choosing three different songs, I'm not going to be emailing you say, you didn't say that to me. So the first first of the three songs, what would it be? The first of the three, I, I did eventually come to this point. In fact, I think I remember tweeting it. I said, I'm finally ready to call my all-time favorite Duran Duran song is New Religion. I love it live. I love the album version. I listened to, and I've talked about this. I talked about this on David's podcast. My real Duran Duran fantasy is to just sit in a studio and just watch them work or sit at the desk with them like uh, classic albums, you know, the VH1 classic album series and just sit at the desk and isolate the tracks. So when they did, when they did New Religion and they're isolating the tracks, I was just in my happy place in heaven. And the only thing I wished for desperately was I was sitting right there next to them and doing that. Cause I do that with my brother. I have, I have sat at the desk with him while he isolates tracks of songs and, and does that. So I absolutely love that. So new religion is the total experience for me for that. So that's number one. Do you know what I think as well, what always amazes me about that song and that album in general is, you have to remember how young they were. And that's what I say. I just, in fact, I just talked about this. I'm going to deviate a little bit. I just talked about this. Somebody said, what, what is, you know, what is the definitive album or something like that? And I said, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. And I talked a little bit about why that, that album is a masterpiece. And the same thing, Brian Wilson was, what, 22 or something? I mean, yeah, so young. Um, so, yeah, same thing. They were to think about that because they're always going to be, it's so funny, even, you know, as a teenager, they just seemed so much, even the look at their pictures now of them when they were like in their 20s, they just seem older to me than my, my you know, when I was teaching in the university, what my 20-year-old students look like, you know? Yeah, but, fame, yeah, fame, fame does at, that. Yeah, they just looked older, even even old, you know, even when I look at them now and say, "Oh my God, they were only twenty-two there." But yeah, they were just so young at the time, and yeah, they just produced this. They they just came up with such a you know same thing that al- I would I would call that album a masterpiece. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there are people to argue with me, but I would absolutely call it a classic album at least. Yeah, well, they certainly wouldn't be getting invited on this podcast. So that's the first of the That's tracks. the first one. What's number two? So the second two, I don't know. I, I could very easily keep shifting the order of them. And again, you know, I talked to you about this a little bit. I've talked, to, I'll say this to other people. It's whatever I'm feeling at the time. So like you, you just said, next week I could probably name, you know, another two and three in that. So I would probably, it's funny, I've been listening a lot to new moon on monday lately and something about that song lately has been grabbing me i love the way simon sings it i love the bass line in it i love that there is almost a a bowie feel to it that's somebody phoning up to to argue with you about rio being a classic album (laughs) 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 um you know there's something about it about that song again where just the pieces seem to fit together 
on that. So it's just, it's just catching me lately. So it's one of those where I'm listening to it. It's one of those where if you're listening in the car, you're kind of, you're moving your head to it, you know, and you're kind of, you're kind of grooving to it and you're singing along with it and that type of thing. So that's, so as of right now, that's number two. I can't say it's all time. And number three is pressure off because lately that's been my, I need a pick me up song. And when I listen to it, I feel good. I feel good. It's funky. It's groovy. It's optimistic. It's modern. Yet there are also, it's, it's a good song. You know, it's a good, it's catchy. It's got everything I like in, in a pop song. Because I also, also think, because I love the video for that. And Yes, I love the video for that too. I mean, I, I grew out of the videos a while ago. I mean, David teases me all the time about, you know, how, yeah, Lisa doesn't, hasn't seen <laughs> most of the videos since, you know, after 1985 or whatever. But that one I love. So that too, I will put on headphones and I'll watch the, you know, the video on YouTube. And, and it's nostalgic in that sense. Uh, I watched the video and I get the goofy grin. You know, like, oh, I love them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I also think as well, I, I love the fact that Nile Rogers is such a, I mean, he says himself, he feels like he's the fifth member. That's his other band. And I love the fact, because he's the coolest guy in the world. And so amazing as a musician, but the fact that Duran Duran's, he feels part of them as a band as well. I got to meet him. Oh, wow. And uh, again, I'm going to give away all the stories in the memoir, but my husband and I started, it actually was, it was a month before our wedding. Uh, they were playing in Washington state and near just outside of Seattle. So we actually made a, we did a road trip from Montana and we got to see them and it just so happened they were staying in the hotel we were staying in and we had no idea. And all of a sudden we're, we're in the dining room and I just looked at Craig and I'm like, Nile Rogers is over there. And I literally, he, he was getting up to walk out and I literally stood in his way. And I just said, Nile Rogers. I said, I am looking forward to seeing you tonight. And I said, thank you. know, And I just was very gracious. And then I said, and by the way, I read your memoir and he pulled me in and gave me a big hug. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nobody's going to tell a better story than that in the podcast. Because <laughs> my favourite, apart from Duran Duran gigs, my favourite ever gig, uh, there's, a, there's a place in Glasgow called the Kelvin Grove Bandstand. So it's a bandstand, it's open air, and you can get about mm. 1,500 people. It's very old-fashioned, and they've done it up yes. recently. Every summer they play lots of gigs in Glasgow, and now Rogers uh, and Sheik played there. And he played, obviously, a lot, all the Sheik songs, but then played all the different songs that he's either written or produced. It was incredible, and it was raining, but it was the perfect night. Summer's night, summer rain, and he just sounded amazing. And you thought that is just—it doesn't. Oh, get he than that. he is unbelievable, and he's got an unbelievable band. Talk about a double billing of Nile Rodgers and Chic and Duran Duran. I mean, you, you're not going to get a better show. Yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. And and yeah, you're you're on your feet you know, for his entire set. And same thing, you just, you forget how many hits this guy has either, you know, directly or indirectly been a part of. Yeah, it's really incredible. But well, yeah, he to, was very gracious, very, very nice. Because I have to say, like, West of Scotland males are very uh, stoic and they're not really touchy-feely, but I must admit, 
I would kind of put that to the side if I could get a hug from Neil Rogers. That is, uh, I'm so envious now. It was great. It was a great moment. It was, it was you know, I, I was happy just to be at the show, but it's like, oh my God, we just met Neil Rogers. <laughs> and, and my husband thinks he saw John Taylor in the lobby at one point. He just went down to get like a coffee or something like that. And I was upstairs and he just came up to me and he goes, I think you're going to hate me. And I said, why? He goes, because I think I just saw John Taylor in the lobby. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I said, you can't have everything. I said, what What makes you, th-? you know, I said, describe him. And he goes, well, I really noticed his shoes. <laughs> like, okay. Well, listen, you've, you've, you've met him anyway. You've met John. Who you I have, I've met, yes. I, I've met them already. So it's okay. But yeah. well, well, listen, that's yeah, three. That's three good. So I have to say, I mean, any three songs are good, but you know, that's because yeah. that, funny when when Molly and I did it, and we both had chosen "Save a Prayer." I and, noticed that you had similar choices, yeah. Yeah, and then we were kind of saying, well, most people, what I've liked has been I've been asking everybody. Uh, a lot of people have been either, you know, choosing a different song from Rio and different songs. So it's obviously everybody's got different tastes, and I quite I like that the fact that people are then plucking different songs. And you say, oh, I never thought of that one, and well, that, and that's again, I like I like that about the questions because. Again, if the next person you interview and you ask those songs and whatever they say, I may turn around and say, oh, my God, I forgot about how good that song is, <laughs> you know, yeah. or or, oh, I never thought about that song in that particular way. OK, I could see why you like that or, you know, something like that. Um, so I do like that aspect about asking that question. Again, you can interview me next month and you're probably going to get at least two different answers. <laughs> <laughs> I called number one, but um, unless we'll till we hear the next single, <laughs> but but yeah, you can ask me at a different time, and I might give I might give you a different answer at that point, and say, oh no 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 no, this week it's yeah, as you say, that's the beauty of the question and, and the fact that you've got yeah. so many songs to choose from. Well, at least I ha- this uh, I have to say I've absolutely loved talking to you. Oh, this uh, was wonderful. Thank you. I I mean I did get in touch with you when I read the memoir. And absolutely loved it. And I would say to either any Duran Duran fans out there or anybody who likes music or, as you say, has got a passion for anything, I think they would really love the memoir. And I'm already looking forward to the next one whenever that comes out. And also looking forward to, to chatting to you on the Read All About It podcast about some of your favourite books and your you know overall writing career as well. I am looking forward to that as well. And if I may just do a little plug. Of course. Um, if you... And unfortunately, I think this is just for the U.S., but if you buy a copy of Friends, if you order the paperback copy of Friends of Mine through the bookstore, This House of Books in Monta- in Billings, Montana, and you want it signed, put a note in, I think actually it says notes, <laughs> or just make a request of, I, am, I would like a signed copy, and I will sign it for you. So if you order through that bookstore, you can get a signed copy of it from me. I'll put the details of that on the show notes. Yeah, you can link. You can put a link to the bookstore, and and other than that, buy it from your favorite local bookstore. <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Anna. It's Thank been you. Lovely chatting to you. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us. That will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter 
at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound. Thank you.